Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast discussing the strange, eclectic, macabre and esoteric, hosted by Rick Palmer. For this episode, my guest is comedian and cryptozoologist Matthew Kesson, who combined a lifelong obsession with monsters with his natural funny bones to create the phenomenon that is Reverend Matt's Monster Science, a regularly updated comedy show he presents that has covered an impressive range of subjects, most notable of which is perhaps what to do in the event of a dinosaur attack. Matt has received praise from no other than Guillermo del Toro for his work, so it was a real privilege to get him on the podcast. We talked about dinosaurs, the devil, dragons, kaiju, and a whole lot more. It was a great chat. Enjoy! Matt, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. You describe yourself as a comedy cryptozoologist. Uh, how did you <laughs> kind of get into into that? Well, I mean, it's it's hard to describe, really, I suppose, but it's uh, I got into it through a local show. It's mostly a live show that I do called Reverend Matt's Monster Science, and uh, it started off with a local show called The Encyclopedia Show, which is a monthly show here where they invite local performers to... Uh, to perform on a particular topic. And several years ago, there was one on mythical creatures and the producers knew that I was into that, that that was just my thing and it had always been my thing. And so they they invited me to come and perform and I did a thing about griffins. And then the one after that was about dinosaurs and I did that. And then after that, I started just uh, taking whatever the topic was and turning it into something about monsters. Like the one after dinosaurs was about... Uh, was about obsolete diseases, and so I did lycanthropy, you know, for kind of a joke, and uh, and I just kept molding it into that, and uh, and it did very well at this sort of variety show called the Encyclopedia Show, and I started doing it as a solo show, as a longer solo show at various museums and theaters and libraries around town, and uh, and it's just kind of I don't know, I've I've always been a comedian, and I've always been extremely into monsters, and so it all just kind of came together. And uh, yeah, that's about that. Oh, cool. So do you, do you find that using comedy to talk about these subjects is, it, it, they, they go well together? They do. They absolutely do. I mean, there's a certain level of, uh, there is a certain level of absurdity to the, to the whole affair. I mean, what we're talking about is creatures that may or may not exist or that don't exist and that are imaginative. And there's always a level of, and I mean this as, you know, as kindly and sympathetically as possible, there is a level of absurd to the imaginary, and uh, and I think that that uh, that that mixes fairly well. Right. Okay. So um, recently, you did a show called "What to Do in the Event of a Dinosaur Attack." Can you just yes. tell us a little bit about about that and, <laughs> and what that show was like? Well, that was that was uh, that was my first appearance at a doing a full length monster science at a local theater festival, uh, a fringe festival like uh, like in Edinburgh and presumably other places over there. And uh, and so I, I did it at the fringe festival, and uh, and it took me a while to figure out what I was going to talk about. Now that I had a fringe festival show, and uh, I came up with a couple ideas, and then as soon as I hit on what to do in case of dinosaur attack, I'm like, this is this is a fringe festival show. This is very much in the spirit of how the fringe festival works at least here in Minneapolis and uh, and it was it was a fairly amazing experience because uh, because I think the I think the title was one that was attractive to people you know in its sort of you know whimsical nature and uh, and I, I got some really excellent uh, photography done of me being attacked by this uh, decommissioned animatronic uh, Deinonychus from one of those one of those touring shows and uh, and so it wound up doing very well and I got over my five shows I got about uh I got about 600 people to come and see the show and it was very well received and got a lot of press locally. And so it was actually, I mean, as far as what that experience was like, that experience was, was blissful. That experience was just very exciting and very thrilling because a lot of people came and saw the show and liked it very, very much. And, uh, and it, I got to do some educating as well, you know, because there was, there were, there were, uh, real honest dinosaur facts in there that people didn't know. A friend of mine brought her, brought her daughter who was super into dinosaurs and told me that her daughter was, was very excited to see all of these dinosaur facts that she, you know, that she did not see generally propagated in culture put up on stage in front of a bunch of people. And so that was, that was very satisfying as well. Ah, brilliant. Yeah. I think um, it's, it's hard to find anybody who's not into dinosaurs, I think. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 
So um, what, what are some of these facts that you, you were talking about in that show? Well, like one thing is I talked about the prevalence of uh, feathers, which is something that people are becoming more aware of, but uh, but still not entirely. It still hasn't really taken root in the culture. Usually when you see pictures of dinosaurs, they are they are scaly or otherwise bald. And, uh, and people are aware of it, but not everybody is, and it's not something that is... Uh, that is in the general um, awareness, and so talk about that was uh, was something that I like to put out there, and then just just little things, you know, like uh, pachycephalosaurs, which are the dinosaurs with the big domed heads, are very frequently depicted as. Uh, as ramming into each other like bighorn sheep for mating rituals, but it's been pointed out that uh, that since their heads are round, if they were to run into each other that way, they would most likely glance off of each other quite likely breaking their necks, which is not, you know, which is not an adaptive advantage. And uh, and so there's a school of thought that says that, no, they, they couldn't have done that. Their heads weren't built for that. So just little things like that, little pieces of sort of, you know, relative trivia to the to the general mindset. And it's just, I don't know, it's fun for me to get that, get that out to people. Oh, okay. And, and in terms of cryptozoology, um, do you, what do you think about dinosaurs in cryptozoology and, and the idea that they might have survived or... And, and things like that. Sure. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, of course, you have your Mokalium bembe, and you have a variety of uh, pterosaurs. Are the are the big ones there? Um, I uh, I'm a fan of cryptozoology. I I, uh, I cryptozoology is is tricky in my show because uh, because like I said, it's comedy and it's. <laughs> it's tempting to make fun of cryptozoologists, but I don't want to, you know, I, uh, I have a lot of respect for what they're doing. I have a lot of respect for their motives. Um, there are not a lot of, of their topics. There are not a lot of cryptids that, that, uh, that I think are terribly likely from a scientific point of view. And I do, I do, you know, I'm a science minded person myself. I, I do, uh, try to look at things as scientifically as possible. And I'm a terribly big, and I will read every book you write on Mokelium Bembe. I love the idea of Mokelium Bembe. I love the search for Mokelium Bembe. But the, uh, there's just, you know, there's, there's 65 million years of a fossil record, and it is incomplete. And it is, you know, everybody trots out the, the coelacanth as this animal with, uh, with a 65 million year gap in its fossil record. And that's, that's true, that's valid. But on the other hand, I mean, you do have a fossil record of dinosaurs, 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 and then no dinosaurs for 65 million years. And that's, that's indicative of something, you know, that, that seems like it's, uh, that you can't ignore the fossil record. You can point out that it's incomplete, but you can't ignore it. And for that reason, I, I, the, the Mokelium Bembe and the pterosaurs just seem like a bit of a long shot to me. Right. Okay. And, and doing that show, did you get any, Crypto zoology fans coming up to you after oh. stuff. Actually, I did go ahead and throw Mokelium Bembe in there. Um, it was actually in the show, just as as part of the structure of the show is is circumstances in which you might encounter dinosaurs. Um, I did not actually get any uh, any cryptozoology fans uh, coming up to me. No, no, I, I have not. I've yet to receive that. I've uh, I've addressed. I have shows that have cryptozoology sections. An entire cryptozoology shows as well um and then i deal with it on, and then i have like a monthly daily monster and by monthly daily i have a monthly theme and then daily monsters on that theme on the various social media and uh and every couple of months it's it's a cryptozoology theme it's a cryptozoology theme right now it's flying cryptozoology animals and uh and remarkably i've yet to uh to have anyone um talk to me about any of my specific themes. One thing that does happen is because I'm known, you know, where I live as uh, known here in Minnesota as a monster guy, people do come to me with their sightings in, in confidence. People come and want to talk to me about what they've seen. No, no, no dinosaurs or anything, certainly, but uh, mostly what I get is, uh, is UFO sightings and Bigfoot sightings. And it's interesting because, uh, because though I, you know, list towards the skeptical myself, um, a number of the people who've come to me have, uh, and this is anecdotal, of course, but they've come to me and I have been entirely impressed with their sincerity and the clarity of what they've seen. They, you know, these aren't misidentified bears or any of that other sort of thing. Um, I believe that 
they entirely believe that they saw a Bigfoot, for example. And, uh, and given that the, the, the good scientific evidence for Bigfoot, I do find to be lacking. I don't actually have a, I don't have a, uh, a way of reconciling that. Um, I'm impressed with their sincerity and their clarity, but the lack of other evidence is troubling to me. And I don't know, I don't, I don't have an answer for that. And that's an interesting question to me. Okay. Can you, can you tell us about one of those um, encounters that you've been told about? Well, I mean, I, I wouldn't want to go into it. I mean, I can't go into any specific detail, but um, just because they were told to me in confidence, but, um, yeah, sure. but I have, but I know I, I, there's, 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 I mean, there've been people, uh, there've been more than one person who was, who was in a car and, uh, and the, uh, and the, 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 the creature came out of the woods in front of them. And there were like multiple people in the car and they all, and they stopped the car and saw it and watched it. And it, and it, uh, and it left. I have, I have multiple, uh, yeah, car based in the woods, uh, sort of sightings in Minnesota. We have a, we have a great, we have a great sort of North woods area. And so, uh, so, so fairly simple, fairly straightforward. Um, they saw it, but they saw it clearly and in broad daylight and, uh, and, uh, yeah, and, and, and that's the, I mean, that's the interesting thing about cryptozoology is that it is remarkably, I mean, it, it, with, with its, with its name, it, it, it it's a, it's a science or, or a pseudoscience, depending on how you, uh, you care to look at it. People t- try to approach it scientifically. And so as far as monster stories go, cryptozoology is stories. I mean, even the stuff that you read besides the stuff that I've heard is stories of, just seeing something strange and that's it. You know, it doesn't attack you. It doesn't uh, do anything remarkable. It's just something outside of the understood order of creation. And that's it. That's the whole story. You see it, it goes away, the end. Um, so those are the, yeah, those are the stories that I've, that I've heard. Right. I mean, yeah, there seems to be a spectrum of, of from plausible to implausible, I would say. So something like a Tasmanian sure. tiger I would say right, it's, of it's course. possible that that still survives somewhere in Tasmania. Absolutely, but, extinct for less than a hundred years. So sure, yeah. But something, say, I don't know, like a dragon. <laughs> well, right, <laughs> right, right, right. Is, yeah, is, is, is more implausible. But but right. I, I know what you mean. I I was talking on another episode. I was talking to a guy who's a cryptozoologist in the UK, and he okay. um, he investigated a, a sighting someone had of a Bigfoot in, in Surrey, which is. A, less than probably less than 30 miles from the center of london and, <laughs> right and and this person was you know this person was seemed entirely genuine and they and right. and, and, and my guest he was like i'm i'm sure they saw something but you i, I agree with what you're saying it's it's it, when, when somebody somebody says that they've seen something it's you know you you believe them and but then there's also right. the, the rational side of it um Right, that you kind of have to balance out. I, I think that's something where I wouldn't say it, cryptozoology struggles, but I think I think if anything, it's the key to what cryptozoology is. I, I think I think the really interesting yeah. thing about cryptozoology is that it. I mean, personally, I think it, it challenge. We have to kind of challenge what our concept of of, of seeing it is and what re, what reality is for that person. I mean, I, I think these people well, are saying right. something, but but probably not a not a physical thing. Not an animal. Yes, exactly. Yeah, no, I've been, I need to do some reading on it, but I've been wondering about visionary experience because, I mean, modern Western culture is one that entirely devalues visionary experience in a way that a lot of cultures don't. Uh, I mean, a lot of, a lot of other places, you know, put some sort of value on what we dismiss as hallucination. But, uh, but I think that's, I think there's a cultural aspect to that where, uh, old Western culture and non-Western culture uh, will put more stock in seeing things that might not be physically there and that the human brain and that in our devaluing of it, we ignore something that happens more regularly than we might think. This is all, this is all pure speculation, but it's, 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 to me, it's the most interesting road to go down as far as reconciling the honesty of the sightings and the, uh, and the, the, seeming lack of physical reality yeah uh, have you read a book by, called the supernatural by jeffrey kripal and whitley streber 
I have not. I've read. I read Communion years and years ago. That's the that's the only Streber that I've read. But uh, but yeah, tell me about it. It's, it's good. So it's they, they co-author it. They they take a cha- in in turn. They they write a chapter, um, and the the Whitley Streber oh. stuff is is really interesting actually because um, I think when he when he first experienced the, that whatever happened to him, he was he was sure. he was pretty adamant that it was an alien abduction. But reading it now, a physical reality. Sure. Reading it now, he talks more about. He talks more about that experience, and he makes an interesting point that um, uh, basically what I think he comes down to is that he he had a what would be like a shamanic experience, but instead of like like instead of the shaman initiating it, the, it was the right. it was the 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 other side that kind of found him and and took him. Through oh that. sure. And he was talking about how in in a lot of shamanic experiences. They describe that that the shaman will go into the other world and be kind of taken apart and put back together. Oh, um, sure, yeah. There's a lot of there's a lot of that that sounds like a sounds like an abduction experience. And I've also read um, I'm reading I'm reading Dimensions by Jack Vallee at the moment, which talks about okay. the historical context of of UFO sightings. And and there's a lot there too that sounds it sounds more like uh, like you were talking about like. Um, like, like like Western society, there isn't so much so much of a, a kind of a psychedelic experiences anymore. We 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 don't go through. Right. We're not so much of a kind of a ritualistic society in terms of our, our spiritual side. So so perhaps right. if we were like you know like rejected it a little bit, those 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 entities or whatever they are from the the other side are, are kind of coming to us to to to, yeah. to find us maybe. Well, that's a question, and it's a question of. I mean, I don't know. I, I I don't really have a myself a really thorough sort of system of saying what visionary experience itself is, um, whether it's entities from the other side or um, or something something that happens entirely in the brain, perhaps spontaneously or perhaps you know induced by drugs or ritual. Um, but uh, but what I do know, or at least what I do believe, is that. Uh, is that in the West, if it's if you're seeing something that is not physically there, then then ignore it, throw it out. That means nothing, and that's not necessarily a good way of approaching it, regardless of the nature of the invisible thing. If I'm making any sense at all, um, I don't know what the invisible thing is, but I do know that we ignore it, and that might not be the best approach. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I, I would agree. Um... You've got a show coming up called uh, Magical Weirdo Neighbors. Yes, yes, Magical Weirdo. Yep, yep. Would that are you, in in that? I, are, you, are you discussing ent- entities that, that would kind of come into this category? I'm doing uh, that's that's my uh, that that'll be my overview, my global overview. I like to get I like to get as global with these things as possible when I can. Uh, that'll be my global inter- uh, overview of of what's called the Fae or the Fairy or all all that sort of thing, um, which is you know fairly obvious in in Europe, but um, surprisingly uh, universal. I mean, I, I try to be suspicious of uh, getting too. I mean, I like Jung, but I uh, Carl, Carl Jung, but I I try to get I, I try to be suspicious of the idea that the same stories are told everywhere because often when that is said, it's it's because of the giant shoehorn, really. They're, they're putting things together. But it really is remarkable how many cultures, how many untouched, unrelated cultures have tiny, magical, trickstery sorts of creatures in them. And, uh, I mean, there's one, you know, there's there's one for the uh, the local Native Americans, which are the Ojibwe, and there's Japanese ones, and they're, they're just all over the place. And so I'm doing an overview of that. And yes, and that is very, I mean, as far as UFO experience is concerned, I'm certainly not the first person or, or the last to point out certain commonalities between the UFO experience and uh, and a lot of stuff that is said about the fairy experience, these small sort of weird creatures that come from someplace else often take us away and... Uh, and uh, yeah, the, the I think the two, the idea that the UFO experience is uh, is the fairy abduction experience is uh, with sort of a technological skin on it. I think is a very valid one. Yeah, definitely. So, is there is there a case in particular from the this upcoming show that that is a favorite of yours that exemplifies this? Oh, uh, what's the name? Uh, 
I'm, 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 I'm only just, I'm spending today uh, doing the writing of it. Actually, I write things at the last minute. It's a very bad habit, but um, <laughs> the, uh, I mean, on the one side, um, on the one side, I, I'm, I'm, I like the, it's not a case, but a, a specific sort of angle on it is the, uh, is the changeling experience. Um, the thing that the, 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 uh, and this this doesn't really touch touch on the UFOs, but but the the whole idea where uh, where babies are are in fact fairies, and and your baby has been replaced. Um, I mean, on the simplest possible level, that's to do with you know baby diseases and explaining why babies aren't acting like babies ought to. But there's still this, and and that's a fairly simple you know mythological explanation. But there's still this weird otherworldly paranoia to it you know your baby has been replaced by a baby from another dimension you know and that and that being a real idea is sort of existentially terrifying in a way that you know in a way that i think is 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 just under the surface um another thing i like is uh, another thing that's interesting about the fairies is uh um is the way they uh the their their persistence how you hear about in in iceland uh they're you know not being able to build roads in certain places because it would go through a go through a fairy fairy area or go through a trolls area or that sort of thing as late as the 19th century there's a there's these japanese creatures called the called the tengu which are these sort of bird men and they're magical tricksters and uh as late as the 19th century they would post uh, po- they would post bills basically uh, in Tengu areas saying the emperor will be traveling through here on this date and we need all the Tengu to cool it. And, uh, and uh, you know, so the Tengu would read that and be like, oh, geez, the emperor. Um, and, and, and that's great. I love, I love that. I love that persistence. And I love when something so chaotic is dealt with so practically. And so seriously, uh, on the UFO side of the thing, and this and this actually this goes in another direction from fairy as well. But the uh, the crossover thing is one of the big uh, one of the bigger uh, UFO encounters um, in America is uh, is is the so called Andreessen affair, which was a woman who was who was abducted a number of times, and she was a devout Christian and believed, the, and they were classic grays, they were straight up grays. Um, but she believed them to be angels. She believed them to be angels of the Lord, which they never really said they were, but that was, that was how she interpreted them. And, uh, and so that just brings another layer to it. Um, another interpretation of otherworldly experience. Yeah, definitely. Uh, one thing I find interesting about fairy encounters is where somebody will go, somebody will go somewhere and then they'll, they'll find that they can't get out for a while. There'll, there'll be something that kind of oh, yeah. keeps them in a, in a, in a like a, in a forest or a, or an, an ancient monument often it is i've read a case in in england where someone went to a they went, it was a nine age fort um but they went in to this enclosure it was like a big earthen ditch and they just they just, oh. they just described it as they couldn't find their way out for a while anyway they yeah, just had yeah. to keep stay there for a while and and then a, oh wow eventually they found the way out and, and i've heard that kind of story before those are in terms of Fairy and- yeah, pixie lead. Isn't that, isn't, that, isn't that a term for that? Pixie lead, I believe? Yes, definitely. I've heard the term pick. Yeah, anyway, it's gone. Yeah, and encounters I've read where the ones that are the most kind of sinister, I would say, are the ones where someone will be walking along and they'll just see someone in front of them. Oh. And they'll, and they'll, know, and they'll know it's not right. They'll have that kind of... There's something uncanny about that experience. Sure, that seems to be. And, oh yeah, and that's another thing that kind of that kind of moves from from fairy encounters to to encounters with greys and, and aliens. There's the the connections there are, are, are really really interesting. Absolutely, yeah. So, um, when you put together the idea for a show, where where do you kind of take your inspiration from? Are you uh, as as a, as someone who's interested in cryptozoology and and themes like this so uh, are there other areas that you you kind of don't know much about and you want to find out more or, or do you kind of tend to kind of know something that will work in a, in a, in a kind of a comedy setting or uh, sure 
Um, yeah, that kind of it, it it varies. I mean, some of the uh, some of the shows, like I'm I am particularly into dinosaurs, and so when I did what, what to do in case of dinosaur attack, that required zero research. I mean, I knew all of the ways that a dinosaur could possibly attack you, and so I uh, so so I just so I just wrote a, wrote wrote jokes about it and uh, and put it together. Whereas in other cases, uh, other cases are extremely research intensive. I'm doing I'm still in the middle of a bit of reading for the uh, for the fairy one this Saturday, and I again I'm, I'm always I, it is always exciting to be able to. Uh, to to get some research in the research is a thing that I enjoy very much. Uh, one that I did recently that required a whole bunch of research was uh, there's a there's a horror theater festival here in town, the Twin Cities Horror Festival, and I did a show about uh, about the devil, about the history of Satan in Western thought, and uh, and I knew some vague things. I knew some I knew some interesting hooks, but I I wasn't terribly steeped in that, and so uh, so I had about seven books. Uh, in that, and so that was a very big research uh, project with a lot of, uh, I mean, seven is, I guess, seven isn't the hugest research project in the world, but it was, it was seven books, and uh, and that was, and I learned a bunch of stuff, and that was extraordinarily interesting. And so sometimes, like with this horror festival, there's some imperative to have some kind of theme, and uh, you know, so for the horror festival, I'm going to do, I'm not going to do dinosaurs for the horror festival. I'm not going to do the Loch Ness monster for the horror festival. I'm going to do classical horror monsters one way or the other. And so sometimes that points me in a direction and that's, uh, and that's terrific. I also just have a, have a monthly show, um, where I can, where I can do whatever I want. And, uh, and one thing that I do is that I, I categorize monsters in four categories. And this is just for myself and for my own work. And there's prehistoric, cryptozoological, mythological, and entirely fictional. And I try to, I try to spin through those categories. I try to uh, hit each of those four as much as possible. I wind up doing a lot of fictional ones just because those are especially popular. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that has to do with my selection process. But I mean, really the whole point, the reason I started Reverend Man's Monster Science is that I have hundreds of books about monsters of all of these categories, and uh, it's just something that my brain is full of, and so, uh, and so I, uh, and so I, and so just the ideas keep. Every so often, I sit down and I'm like, "How many more ideas do I have for this? How many more of these shows can I write?" And I just start writing down ideas, and I've got, and, I, and after I get to twenty, I just stop because I've got, I've got, I'm going to have ideas for this series for the rest of my life. And, uh, and that is, uh, that is lovely. It's a huge concept monsters and you wind up hitting all of these various topics. You know, like I talk about dinosaurs and I talk about how evolution and ecology works. And I talk about Godzilla and there's this whole thing about how the American economic re restructuring of Japan in the late forties and early fifties kind of made Godzilla as a mythical creature inevitable. And so there's, you know, there's, there's wartime history and all sorts of different, uh, you know, we've been talking about visionary experience and there's all sorts of different scientific and sociological topics that you can hit on. If you just hit, if, if, if you're just talking about monsters as a huge broad category. And so, uh, as far as which ones I pick, it's, uh, um, like I said, I have my four categories that I like to cycle through, but other than that, it's kind of whatever strikes my fancy. And so that's, it's a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, I can imagine it is. So, um, you're talking there about your sympathy for the devil show. Yes. Uh, so when you were researching that, how, how do you, how do you kind of start with a with a topic like, like the devil? How do you, how do you distill it down into a into a show? How how long does your show last? Like a, a couple of a couple of hours? Uh, most most of my shows are most of my shows are an hour long actually, and uh, and uh, certainly this one was, and uh, and certainly the devil the devil did wind up being a topic that I uh, that I raced through to get to get it into into an hour. Um, there was quite a great deal of editing of uh, of material, um, and that you know, and that's just that's. Uh, that's just based on what material you regard as uh, as the most important. But as far as getting started, um, there's there's a uh, there's an author called Jeffrey Burton Russell who's written five books on the history of the of, of the devil, and so you sort of start with him. There are, I mean, there are a number of books on all of these topics. There's a book called The History of Hell. I forget the uh, the writer of that, but that was excellent. That was one of my favorites. And there's an there's a, an encyclopedia of hell. You know, I mean, you, you just you can you can find books on topics. Jeffrey Burton Russell is regarded as the uh, the sort of uh, last word 
on the historical Satan, and rightly so. I mean, his research is is broad and deep and impeccable. Um, he's a little difficult to read sometimes because he uh, he believes that the devil is literally real, and which is fine, but then. He also is is mad that you don't is upset that society has a, has abandoned the devil as a concept and that can be that can be frustrating and pedantic. But anyway, I digress. Okay, so in in your show, what, what kind of what were the what were the points that you you, you got across with with your show about the devil? Like, what was what was what was interesting well, the- for you to to talk about? What, what was interesting? What was the way it kind of wound up? Uh, getting put together was uh, there's sort of three not necessarily related roles that the devil fills. There's three stories about the devil, and uh, and it, and like one thing is that in the olden days they were not necessarily the same character. But I'm I'm getting ahead of myself. The um, okay, there's the fall. There's uh, there's there's Lucifer's fall from heaven. That's one, and, and the and hence the creation of evil. That's that's one story about the devil. There's the tempter. There's the the the, the author of all lies. There's the the active devil who creates all evil. That's another story of the devil. Um, you know, in the world, the devil made me do it. That one. And then there's the ruler of hell. Then there's the entity that that is in charge of eternal punishment. And these, you know, and to us, of course, these are all stories of the same entity but in early christianity they weren't like like in some stories lucifer fell from heaven and met satan who was in charge of hell um and a separate person and uh and all and you can combine and you can split these into three entities or two in one in any possible combination and i thought that was extremely interesting um the rise and fall of the importance of these stories um, was one thing that I liked very, very much. Um, in old, like if you read, uh, if you read Inferno, if you read Dante's Inferno, the devil is this giant, hairy, weeping creature stuck up to his waist in a lake of ice. Um, and devouring with his three faces three great historical sinners and uh, and Judas Cassius and uh, and Brutus and uh, maybe not Brutus I forget but anyway um, and he's this huge bloated helpless monster and uh, and you know I read Inferno you know thirty years ago and I've known this for a million years but in my research this was standard at the time the devil himself was this monstrous thing being tortured and the the suave, tempting Mephistopheles is relatively late in the game. Um, and so those sorts of changes um, are, are something that's extremely interesting to me. Yeah, do you think it... Uh, one thing I seem to find when you, when you look at anything that's esoteric, like tarot, yes. tarot or magic or grimoires, is that there's, there's a point where someone has taken it and given it a backstory so i think so for instance right so for instance tarot tarot was a a card game and then it got developed in in the renaissance times in italy and then but then a couple of hundred years later a guy i think it was a guy called eliphas levi levi took it and, yes, and, kind, yes, of, levi. and kind of gave it this this esoteric background beginning in ancient egypt because because ancient egypt was really popular right. at the time and and with grimoires as well, I think so. There, there are grimoires that again kind of come from the Renaissance, and they're and they're said to they're said to be um, copied from even older books that, that again from Mesopotamia or um, or ancient Egypt. And, and I think what right both of those cases, there's a sort of a there's a half truth to those stories because. I would I would say like that the tarot kind of if you want to use the tarot that way, you, you can use it in an esoteric fashion. And, and I imagine that some really old um, texts from ancient Egypt probably did end up in, in Renaissance Italy and, and get copied down. But, but what's happened is that someone's taken that and, and they've created the grimoire and they created uh, the tarot deck that, that meet that kind of, Oh, absolutely. The story they're telling about that thing. Do you think with the devil, that's, that's, that's similar. Like people have, the, the devil is this kind of archetypal entity, and he's he's just changed with changed with the, with the climate of. 
Yeah, with the needs of the time, with what with what people with what people found uh, found important at the time, and yeah, absolutely, it's it's completely, uh, yeah, it's it, everything's made completely retroactive. Every idea that you have about the devil is the way the devil has always been, and of course, that's never true of anything that's made out of stories, you know, and. Uh, and yeah, this happens constantly with, as you say, the esoteric stuff. So many people are, uh, there's, I, I think with, I think what happens is that when you're dealing with esoterica, including the tarot or the, or the devil or whatever, there's, there's this idea that you want to have if you're promoting the concept that, uh, that this is essential reality, you know, that this is something that is about the structure of the universe. I mean, the devil is evil is, is what evil is. And there's always been evil. And, uh, and therefore whatever you're saying about it, whatever you're saying about evil has to be part of the structure of the universe and therefore has to have been there in the way you're describing it since the beginning of time. And so, uh, and so because of its essentialness, I think, because or its pretense to 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 essentialness, I think that's what that's part of what causes the the tendency to 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 backdate the ideas. Yeah, okay. Um so to, a little while ago you were talking about the the four kind of uh, types of cryptid you talk about, um prehistoric, yes. zoological, mythical and fictional. And um, those last two. Yes. What what would you say is the difference between a mythological cryptid and a and a fictional one? Well, it's, I mean, uh, and the thing about it is that there's enormous bleed between all of these, you know, like werewolves are one where it's extremely difficult to, 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 to determine the one from the other. Um, on a really simple case, on, on, on a really simple level, people use, it's almost more of a, more of a time thing for mythological versus fictional. People used to believe there were dragons, um, they don't anymore, really. Uh, I mean, some people do, but we're not going to get into that, but, um, the uh, yeah, mytholo- mythological is mythological sits between cryptozoological and fictional in, in, in that mythological is sort of once cryptozoological and now fictional. It's 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 uh, it, it, it's it's a time barrier between the uh, a time a time scale between the two. So mythological are creatures that were ostensibly anyway taken seriously at one point but that are now generally understood to not exist whereas fictional would be godzilla um or you know the xenomorph from alien something that nobody ever nobody ever proposed with a straight face um and again you get bleed through in uh uh in america there's there's this there's this tradition of pioneer monsters called fearsome critters that are uh that are basically stories that were told around the fire by 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 bored pioneers and they were told with a straight face but nobody really believed them and so that kind of sits on a border between mythological and fictional and there's there's a lot of that like a lot of stuff that we understand to be true about werewolves in particular a lot of the basic facts about werewolves are uh are mostly uh cinematic um there's very little in the mythology about uh like the bite vector transmission or uh or the full moon they exist but they're not real prevalent and the fact that they've become the default for werewolves the full moon the catching it by bite is is entirely the result of the fiction section of this uh, categorization. Okay, and going back to dragons, I mean, mm-hmm. what do you think? Yes. Well, I mean, dragons are really cool, uh, and I guess yes. you, think, you think that's why they've they've always they've they've survived as a, the, the, the legends about them and 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 their status as a as a creature of legend is as not has not ebbed. Dragons, dragons are another, like I was saying, um, the, the, like, like I was saying about the genuine sightings versus the lack of physical evidence is a question I don't have an answer to. Another question I don't have an answer to is dragons because I mean, certainly not every culture in the world, but a lot of cultures all over the place have enormous, supremely powerful, supernatural reptiles of some sort. Um, and why that would be. I don't know. I mean, that's, that's, uh, there's no, 
I mean, some some mythological creatures sort of suggest themselves. You take a, a griffin and you take, you know, a lion and an eagle, which are the two most impressive animals of the land of the sky. You smash them together and sure, of course you do that. But, uh, and then people also don't do it everywhere, which makes it less, you know, less weird. Um, but dragons are everywhere and kind of specific. And I'm, yeah, I hate to, you know, disappoint. I hate to cop out, but I don't know why. Um it's uh the the best explanation that the, the explanation that i like the most and it's kind of flawed and speculative but the explanation that i like the most is uh carl sagan's idea that uh a long long time ago for 150 million years our ancestors uh lived in a world with colossal reptilians that could destroy them with thought and uh and uh and it's been a long time since that was the case. It's been 65 million years since uh, since our ancestors had to deal with that. But prior to that 65 million years, it was an easy 150 million years of our ancestors living in the shadow of colossal, terrifying reptilians. And it is seems to me possible that some remaining instinct has lasted for that long of a period of time. I mean, it's easily... It's it's uh, it's easy to argue against. Sixty five million years of instinct is a long time of instinct, but uh, but I don't know. It's it, 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 I find it I find it to be a compelling argument, nevertheless. No, I, I I really like that. Something else I was thinking is that perhaps perhaps it's a memory of a of a natural disaster like a like a volcano or something with all the with all the fire and the, oh sure and the and the destruction that comes with that. I, I'm I'm not sure because in um in in the uh, Rodan, one of one of Godzilla's kind of yes uh, friends slash enemies, <laughs> associates. Yeah, associate. yes. Um, he can cause he can cause storms <laughs> with his with the flapping of his wings, which um, right, the right. cat in the in the new in the upcoming Godzilla film, which I'm I'm really excited that they got Rodan and Mothra and and King Ghidorah in the yep in the new yep film. me right, too so cool. Um, but yeah, I mean, I I. I, I, I part of me thinks that when I try and think about this, it's it's like um, I can't I can't experience what it was like for a culture a thousand two thousand years ago. I can't really experience what their reality was like because this culture would have had perhaps a pantheon with these entities in it, um, and so I'm not sure. I mean, I, it, my reality is very different from theirs, so I, I kind of come with it. Not not so much that. The dragons were these real flesh and blood creatures, but but they did have a sort sure. of a, a reality, and I, I don't know. I mean, I, I I'm not I'm not smart enough to kind of elucidate beyond that, but but I I do get the sense that dragons are something beyond a living. I don't I don't think they're creatures. I think there's something else. Like going back to what we were talking about about um, entities that you can contact through shamanic practices or or psychedelics psychedelic sure and um, trips and things like that I, I think that's where they might come from or they they're they're sort of a, a representation of that sure oh absolutely yeah yeah no that that uh that that makes sense and of course monster making in general at its at its best is always symbolic you know there's always something something you're you're trying to put for some reason it seems that people are better at dealing with things if they have some kind of face if there's eyes looking mm. back at you. Um, and so, so many, so many monsters are just natural disasters or other sorts of disasters made into an animal because apparently, apparently that's easy for us. Like the, the Greek Hydra, you know, the, the name means water and the thing where, where you would cut off a head and two, two, uh, two heads would, would, uh, would emerge. Um, is taken to be uh, that the hydra was was flooding, and that you would and that you would try to try to you know try to try to dam the flooding, but it would it would split in two and come at you. Godzilla, of course, is is a transparent metaphor for uh, for the atomic bomb, and uh, and yeah, so a lot of monster making is 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 putting is turning disasters into animals, and uh, and again, why we do that is is an interesting yeah, question. Yeah, Japan already had it. A, a pretty incredible folklore regarding monsters. 
Oh, yeah, no, no, the Japanese, the, I was just telling a friend of mine about this yesterday. The, uh, I mean, it's hard to, you, you go to various cultures and you, and some of them have a bunch of monsters and some of them have fewer, everybody has monsters, but some of them have a bunch of them and some of them have fewer of them. And it's kind of hard to say whether this is a question of the nature of the cultures or just something about the recording of it um, and dissemination of the idea, but uh, whichever one it is, Japan is loaded. Japan has dozens of weird, fascinating, creative monsters. It's a, it's a, it's a good, good place for monster stuff. Yeah, my, my particular favorite is the giant hairy foot that turns up and demands to be washed. <laughs> I, just, I, just, I, just, yep. I, I love that so much. It's, just, it's, it's, it's brilliant. And, 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 I mean, Japan is such, I mean, like, Japan's never really had a, it's not. It's never been monotheistic. I don't think it's. It's always been sort right. of animistic, and I think yes, that lends that lends itself to, to having a, a, a very rich kind of um, oh range, sure range of range of creatures like that. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Cool. So, um, Matt, if you were to come uh, when and if you come to the UK, would you do? Would you do a, a UK specific monster science? Would you? Oh, would I. You, you take something well, from the UK, or? well, you guys. I mean, you guys are also very, very rich. I mean, the 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 the, the fairy folklore alone. I could one could go on and on and on. Um, I've been to the UK twice, a number of years ago, and uh, and I've gone up to uh, gone up to Loch Ness both times. I'm a terribly big fan of Loch Ness, um, but yeah, it would be yeah. I doing a UK monster science would be like would be like doing the devil show, which is to say I would have to edit so much stuff out to come in at an hour. I would have to do a series. I mean, I mean, you could do, I mean, you could certainly easily do UK cryptozoology with the lake monsters and with the alien big cats and uh, the big gray man of Ben McDewey and all kinds of stuff like that. Um, you could do a whole, you know, I could easily do, easily do an hour on just the fairy stuff could do an hour on the dragons the lambton worm and the red and white dragons of wales and all that kind of stuff and so uh so yeah um yeah i would have to do a series <laughs> on the uk and uh and and, and that is and, and that's a place where i mean i think i think you both have uh have an especially rich um level of, of, of creation and, uh, and, uh, and obviously a, uh, an especially excellent, uh, record keeping of it all. So I think both things work in your favor, but like I, I get the, uh, I get the magazine 40 and times, which I, I assume you're, you're aware of. Yeah. I'm a subscriber uh, as well. <laughs> yes. Um, and, uh, and I mean, one thing, uh, just as far as I can tell as a, as an American, um, it's it, it's no mistake that the Fortean Times is a magazine that comes out of the UK because uh, because it, it just seems seems from my perspective that uh, that the British have a special fascination for the unexplained and the supernatural. Oh yeah, I mean, I think if you if you came to to do the Edinburgh Festival and did a like a series of shows there, I I, I think you'd be you'd, you'd sell out. I think you'd be perfect <laughs> for it. Well, I'd love to one day. Yeah. Cool. So at the moment on Twitter, you're you're tweeting regularly about um, flying cryptids. Yes, that's this month's theme. Yes. And you kicked off with probably the most famous one, yes. Mothman. Mm-hmm. Have you have you done a have you done a monster science about about that? I haven't. I actually have a have a one upcoming. Um, I believe I was going to do it in February. I still haven't worked out the schedule, but um, I'm doing one upcoming. I haven't got a title for it, but where the theme is going to be the far the far end of cryptozoology because you take your Bigfoot and and that's a that's a hominid, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a primate of some sort. Uh, you take your Loch Ness monster and there's a variety of theories. The default is it's a plesiosaur. I think it's a flawed idea, but, uh, but generally speaking, cryptids, or at least the most of the most famous cryptids are, are try, they try to describe them as animals, as, you know, normal physical animals. And, and then other people go in other directions with it, but, uh, but that's sort of the default. But of course there's a lot of stuff in cryptozoology. There's a lot of, creatures that people continue to report that uh that cannot possibly be described as animals um 
in any sort of taxonomy as it is currently understood. And of course, Mothman is Mothman is one of the big Mothman is probably the poster child for that category of cryptozoology because there's no there's no bird or bat or mammal that 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 uh, that Mothman could possibly be related to um, and still keep its description as this terrifying glowing red eyed creature that flies without flapping its wings and all that sort of thing. And, uh, and then you read the Mothman prophecies and of course it's in the, the, the Mothman is just sort of the, 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 the poster child for this ocean of bananas, <laughs> unexplained supernatural stuff that's going on in Point Pleasant, West Virginia in the late 1960s. And so, uh, so the Mothman, I mean, the Mothman, you have virtually no choice. I mean, I guess there's a couple people who think that Mothman is, uh, is a, is a physical extraterrestrial, but, but that's kind of the minority with Mothman. You have, you have little choice, but to go with either visionary experience or some sort of extra dimensional sort of thing. And, uh, and it's all completely bananas. I mean, it's all, it's all just, it's, it's high weirdness rather than anything that, uh, that is going to be explained anytime soon by conventional science. And that's, and that's a lot of fun. Yeah, definitely. When I, when I read the Mothman prophecies, the thing it reminded me of was, um, was, was Twin Peaks. They, oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. That, that level of weirdness and just, just reading, reading the book and going, wait a minute, what's What's going on? Like, how is this? How is any of this making any sense at all? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's nuts. And, and but then the interesting thing, um, uh, one of the interesting things about Mothman is that uh, is that over over there, there's the there's the Owl Man in Cornwall, yes. which uh, which is described very very similarly. And I mean, it's and yet somehow I don't know that. It seems. I mean, of course, you can't you can't demonstrate this, but it seems separate. It seems like Mothman and Owlman do not seem like direct cultural transmission, and yet they appear the same, nevertheless. And that uh, and that's fascinating to me because because the Owlman is so obscure. You and I know about the Owlman, and you know, and people who are into this know about the Owlman. But I ju- I feel like the teenagers in Point Pleasant who reported Mothman did not know about the element again can't demonstrate that but the same thing with so many specific descriptors the you know the red eyes and the wings and and, and the humanoid frame it's just remarkable to me that that uh that that recurs yeah definitely okay so um going back to dinosaurs if we can yes um, oh yes so if Considering you're an expert in what to do in the event of a dinosaur attack, if, if you I were, am. say you were hired by InGen before they opened Jurassic Park, <laughs> um, what what advice would you give to them? In, just in terms of in terms of, of running somewhere like that. Well, I mean the, uh, the 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 main advice I would give is of is uh, there's much talk. You know, they they uh, they hire a famous uh, chef apparently, and there's all spare no expense. Spare no expense. Saying over and over again, exactly. Um, spare no expense on the IT. Go ahead and you know, go ahead and don't have one dude running your entire electronic security system. That would be that would be my uh, my my first. Uh, that would be my first uh, my, 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 my first piece of advice. My second piece of advice would be uh, just, and this is something that that, that, that is talked about in, in later Jurassic Park films, is just clone the dinosaurs. Don't enhance them. Don't make them weirder. Just do them straight. Because then they'll be animals. And humans can deal with animals, even big, scary animals. Um, so yes, those would be my two pieces of advice. IT and just clone them straight. Yeah, I mean the last two Jurassic Park films, or the Jurassic World films, they're more monster movies, I would say, because the oh, quite so, yeah. The main, the main kind of antagonist dinosaur is is one that we've created rather than one from the from the fossil record. But even in the but even in even in the straight Jurassic Park, like uh, like my favorite dinosaur, which is saying something, which is a big deal for me to say something is my favorite dinosaur, is Deinonychus, which is the animal that the Velociraptors are based on. There's a weird thing with the with the name where an, where a scientist proposed that Deinonychus was a species of Velociraptor and Crichton ran with it, but then it all fell apart. So what we're dealing with is 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 a dinosaur called Deinonychus, and it's this wonderful dinosaur. It's human scale and terrifying, and will hunt you and all that sort of thing. But it is not 
reasoning how to open doors. It <laughs> is it is not running at cheetah speed. It is it is it is a terrifying animal, but still an animal. Whereas the Jurassic Park Velociraptors are one of the great movie monsters, but are a movie monster rather than rather than an animal. And of course, the explanation and of course, Deinonychus was a uh, was certainly an animal that was covered in feathers, so luxuriously feathered. Um, so. My point is, Jurassic Park Velociraptors, even without all of the Indoraptor and all that, all that stuff from the more recent films, Jurassic Park Velociraptors are are not actual dinosaurs. Even then, with everything that they did to try to make it realistic, even then, they're they're movie monsters. Um, and so, in a real world Jurassic Park, don't take your Deinonychuses and make them smarter and faster and and, and naked. Just make them Deinonychuses. Then we'll probably be able to deal. <laughs> no, that's great advice. Um, I was thinking, um, when they talk about uh, animals that we have today in Africa, they'll say, well, more people get killed by, by hippos than by crocodiles. Yes. Lions. Do you think that if we were to go back in time and 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 kind of have a dinosaur safari um yes because my favorite dinosaurs are the ankylosaurs the big tanks oh and, yeah yeah and, and the horn dinosaurs as well so uh, like styrac oh Styracosaurus yes has the incredible frill of horns and do you think absolutely think two dinosaurs like that are more dangerous than than a predator or, or is it just definitely the predators Unfortunately, there's 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 no way to. I mean, the predators are you know sexier, but uh, but I mean the reason that you, you wouldn't find a hippo, you 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 could find a hippo skeleton, and you would say if there were no hippos now, and you found a fossil of a hippo, you would say, oh, you know, you would see the giant tusks and stuff, and say, oh, this is a potentially dangerous animal. This is an animal that you wouldn't want to screw around with, which is true of like seventy five percent of dinosaurs. Dinosaurs are all covered in spikes and armor and tusks, and uh, but. Uh, but you wouldn't be able to tell that the hippo was the most dangerous animal because uh, because it's the most dangerous animal not only because of its equipment and size but because of its temperament and uh, and unfortunately unfortunately you can't you can't tell that with dinosaurs but yeah it's quite likely especially with uh, as equipped for attack as the herbivores are that yeah certainly some of the herbivores probably were ill-tempered probably uh probably would uh probably were were here to fight you they were equipped to fight you so they would uh they would probably do so so yes absolutely the uh, herbivorous dinosaurs are uh are potentially as dangerous or more dangerous than uh than predatory ones especially the huge predatory ones i mean uh i mean the uh like a tyrannosaur a hungry tyrannosaur, an especially hungry tyrannosaur would come after you, but a not especially hungry tyrannosaur, you're a, I mean, you're a, you're a candy bar, you're a tiny little thing, and, uh, and easily, e easy enough to make yourself not worth its, I mean, go and hide and run and stuff, and it's not going to expend a lot of energy in coming after you, because you're not a big meal, so, uh, so, yeah. Oh well, that's yeah. That's a, that's a that's a great answer. Um, I think we're coming to the end of the, of the show, Matt. This has been a really fantastic chat. Thank you. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it myself. Cool. So, if people want to find out more about uh, your monster science, what's the where's the best place to find out? Well, the show's called Reverend Matt's Monster Science. I have I have a website uh, that I that I keep updated at RevMattsMonsterScience.com. And then if you look up Reverend Matt's Monster Science on the usual social media, the Facebook and the Instagram and the Twitter, I am there as well. And those three all have daily updates with the uh, with like the flying cryptozoology this month, like we were talking about. And I did dinosaurs last month, and I'm not sure what next month is going to be. But I've been doing that for three years now, and, and there's there's no sign no sign of stopping. So it's uh, it's good fun. Check it out. Brilliant. Yeah, I, I heartily recommend it. I, I, would, I, wish, I wish I could go. I mean, I, it'd be great if you could get to the UK. I think that would be, that'd be amazing. Well, I'd love to do that. I would absolutely love to do that. And I'm going to be doing more, more I'm going to be putting more stuff uh, up uh, by way of uh, video and my own podcast in the, uh, in, the, in the near future as well. So there will, be, there will be that kind of material online. Brilliant. Well, good luck with all that. And yeah, thank you again so much. It's been great. Thank you so much. This has been fantastic. Well, I hope you enjoyed listening to that episode as much as I enjoyed making it. I think it is an interesting follow-up to the other cryptozoology episode I did with Andy McGrath. Matt and Andy probably differ in opinion a bit when it comes to cryptids like lake monsters, but there's still plenty of shared ground. 
especially that people who report sightings of unusual creatures are seeing something unusual. And it's what that could be that I think is the really fascinating thing. Matt's blend of comedy with his passion for monsters works really well, and I also liked his four categories for cryptids, prehistoric, cryptozoological, mythical and fictional. They work well to portray the types of creatures featured across the spectrum of cryptozoology. There'll be a link to Matt's website in the show notes. If you want to follow this podcast, you can find me on Twitter at spherical underscore pod. Finally, if you enjoyed this episode, please give it a like and maybe leave a message on the website. It'd be great to get some feedback and will help me improve the show as it goes forward. If you'd like to get in touch about a subject for a future episode or you'd be interested in being a guest, email somotherspheres at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening. Mm-hmm.